are in Exodus, and I'm going to apologize in advance. We're moving through a lot of scripture. It's not going to get any better next week. We're going through more chapters uh, to finish Exodus in the time that's been allotted. Uh, so we'll, we'll kind of work through it. Uh, we're coming to the close. I mean, we're, we're still at Mount Sinai. Uh, I call this laws to live by. And so we're diving into the, the book of the covenant. So when you come off of the, the Ten Commandments, which obviously are called the Ten Words, and these are these, these overarching big commandments, big principles, and then you get these laws that God gives. And, and just to kind of context, this is to Moses directly. He's going to come back and talk to the people. But you're going to get some instructions about worship that come in there first. I put here, um, there are many rules in families that kind of cross over into other families, right? Like you, you go to your friend's house and you say, hey, my parents say I have to do this. And they say, yeah, my parents make me do the same thing. Uh, so for instance, when I was going, growing up, uh, my friends had a curfew. I had a curfew, right? There was very few friends that said, we can come home whenever we want to. Our parents don't care. We want her in the house at any time, any hour. I don't know of any friends that way. And so there's some very similar rules. You know, all of us, most of my friends had to work. And so we had to work. They had to work. You do chores. You take care of things. And so there's certain rules that every family has. And then there's certain rules your family has that no one else has. Right? Have you ever had that occurrence? Uh, I have one I grew up with. It was very distinct rule. And I've not met many other families with this rule. I know for sure that my wife's family did not have this rule. I grew up in a family of eight. And uh, I'm not saying this is the weirdest rule in the world. Um, I actually try to implement it in my own house. But, you know, I met resistance with Heather. Just kidding. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, she doesn't see the wisdom in it like I see the wisdom in the rule. But we had eight kids in our family. And if you can imagine eight kids go to a vehicle... And this is why it makes sense to me. Eight kids go to a vehicle. How many potential arguments are there for where you could sit? So I'm going to compliment my dad since I pick on him enough. My dad, in his great wisdom, instituted a rule. Uh, And the rule is this. We sat in age order from front to back. That's it. That's how it works. And, And literally, like you'd read a book, youngest on the left corner, work your way out, and it just worked its way all the way up. You worked your way up, right? I've tried to institute this rule with my five children, and we have a semblance of this. I've come to a somewhat of a compromise with Heather because I, I believe in this rule. This, is, this is, makes sense to me. Uh, but she keeps on saying, well, it's not fair because then the oldest gets to sit in the front seat the longest. I said, yeah, that's the way it is. Read the Bible, double portion. There's a lot of things in there. You know, <laughs> this, this works out. Um, you might wonder, how long has this rule been ingrained? Two weeks ago, my oldest brother opens the door to his truck. My younger brother is on the passenger side and says to me, my brother Benjamin says, hey, Kenny, you're older. You want to get up front? And I'm like, no, let me break with tradition. I'll sit in the back. I mean, it's a giant truck. It's not like it's uncomfortable for the two-minute drive we're taking. So I sit down. You think, okay, yeah, Kenny. So he remembers. I'm 43. He's in his mid-30s, right, somewhere in there. Um, We're not kids anymore. Five years ago, I'm not kidding you, we fly to my grandmother's funeral in Holland. We're coming back. My brother Ed, he's business class. He doesn't, you know, he's gone. Oldest. Me, my brother, me, so I'm the next oldest. Ryan and Benjamin all have tickets in economy. And if you've ever flown on United, there's economy plus and there's just economy. Well, I was stuck in a middle seat on regular economy. No solicitation. My brother Benjamin hands me his ticket and says, I'm on the aisle in economy plus you're older, 
here you go. It's been five years. I still think he's the best youngest brother in the world, right? I mean, <laughs> this is how ingrained this rule is. Oldest must sit front of plane. You know, it's, it's there. You know, the, if my brother Ed was smart, he would have ma- manipulated, bought the worst ticket. He could have worked himself all the way to the front. But either way, I just want you to see how important this rule is. It's distinctive. I don't know. Anyone else here grow up with a rule like that where you sat in age order in a vehicle and it's transcend? There's one there. It's transcended time. Um, and again, I fought for this rule. Usually I give up when Heather and I argue. It's just not worth it, right? Uh, but this one, I've been saying this makes sense, Heather. This is a, I put a Van Hoven distinctive, but I actually changed that and I put a Jerry Van Hoven distinctive. This is, you know, I'm giving him all the credit. I'm going to probably find out it was my mom's idea and he's just stealing the glory. But either way, um, it set us apart. When my friends got in the car, I'm like, hey, buddy, you got to sit right here. This is, this is your spot. You don't sit up front. You don't get in other people's spot. This is, we just don't, we don't even, we can't comprehend how you could sit in a car differently. That's how ingrained this is in our system. When we come to the rules that God is giving here, and I I say all that story, long thing, it's because we're about to get rules to live by or laws to live by. And these were, were laws that were to set apart Israel. I'm going to be honest with you, and, and if you read through them, you're going to hit some laws and you're going to think, uh, what in the world's going on? This doesn't seem fair to me. It doesn't seem right to me. And I'm going to talk about this in more depth later on. But the fact is, you've got to put these laws in the context of where they're at. This is an ancient culture. So we need to rewind and not Im- impose a Western view onto these laws, but recognize the laws for what they are. And what God was signifying with the laws. It ends up being a blood covenant. If you look at uh, Exodus 24, 7 through 8. And I say this because I'm going to work through these laws in a, in a faster fashion. We're not going to read all the text. So you're going to need to read it yourself. But 24, 7 and 8 tells you how, what takes place. Now remember in 19:8, Exodus 19:8, the people of Israel affirmed the laws that God was going to give. They had already committed to all these laws. Now, in 24, 7 and 8, all the laws we're going to talk about, Moses is coming down from the mountain and telling the people or the representatives of the people what they were, and they're committing to this, and they're, they're, they're offering, and there's a blood sprinkling. It's a blood covenant. So let me read 24, 7, 8. And he took the book of the covenant, because he's written them down, and read in the audience of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Now, these these verses are dual purpose. Remember, we talked about Israel being a nation of priests. And this act of sprinkling the blood on them was typically only done with the priest. And so you get this indication of a nation of priests. But understand, they're committing to these laws to live by. Now, the Ten Commandments have a broader base for God and man's relationship, six man-to-man relationships, and they're big, broad-based laws that cover a lot. In these laws that we're going to go through, it gets very specific to their life and their economy and to their social interactions. Now, before that starts, in 20, when you close out chapter 20, a lot of people don't start the um the book of covenant until chapter 21. But there are a group of people, and I would agree with them, that would see it starting now in 2022. And I'm going to read those. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Remember that, right? God came down on the mountain. They saw his presence. They trembled. They feared. The earth shook. And so he's reminding them before he even gets into the practical laws, remember, you saw me. You were there. You've, you've seen my presence in a unique way. He goes on, you shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. In other words, don't try to make an image of God out of materials of this earth. Don't don't, and, and I want you to realize what he's saying and then realize the golden calf issue when Aaron says, let's worship the Lord, because he actually says that. Let's worship the Lord, and he uses the golden calf as an image of God. I want you to realize that Moses had already instructed them to absolutely never make something that represents God. You don't bow down to any image. You don't make anything with your hands to quote-unquote represent God so you can look at him. And there's a reason why. Because God is uniquely not anything we can make. And he wants them to be serious about that. One of the takeaways from this whole lesson is God's distinctiveness. That it's not anything else. It's that idea of, well, the Muslims have Allah and the Buddhists have Buddha and this person has this God and all leads up to the same mountain. And God, early on in Scripture in Exodus, literally screams to everyone, absolutely not. I am distinct. I am unique. I am the only God. And that's what he's saying here. Don't replicate me with an image. Then it talks about the altars. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings. And burnt offerings were burnt completely up. A lot of the other offerings were burnt partially up. That's why you're going to see different offerings listed. Burnt usually means burnt to ashes. It's over. The rest, they would take the fat, they would eat the fat, they would eat the meat. There was a usefulness to it that the priest had, and they oftentimes would participate in. These burnt offerings... They're all on the altar. Some are burned completely. That's why you see them listed twice. Thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I'll bless thee. In other words, wherever you go, you're to be my people. My name is there. You're to do things this way. And if thou wilt make an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. In other words, I don't want you to display your craftsmanship in an image of me, nor in the altar that you're going to sacrifice on, I don't want you to be thinking about you when you go to worship. I don't want your mind to be enamored with the beauty and ability of who? Humanity, but instead be fixated upon God. And then it goes on. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. And just understand in the context of the, the, the peril they would be wearing, that if they climbed stairs, that they would expose themselves to God. And then I want you to understand this in context of, of the world around them. What did the world around them do? And this is laws about worship. And I have a key here for every law, key, the distinction of God. God reminds Israel that they have talked with him and nothing this world does to replicate him can ever line up. Things to keep in mind. No idol, no image, not even that it represents him. He does not want an image to represent him. You cannot, he says. 
represent me. Thus the thunder, the lightning, the black cloud, and that's just the words we're able to comprehend to describe what God does. Even here, when the, when the elders get to feast or eat in the presence of God, it's a sapphire roof. They never get a full picture of him. They never can quite wrap their mind around it. That's accurate. We should recognize that from Scripture. There's a distinctiveness about God. There is a uniqueness about that. When we're considered narrow-minded, in a context, we very much are. We believe that God is distinct and nothing else lines up. And people don't like that, right? Because we live in a day and age where we want people to accept everything about us and what we believe. And we are told by our God we absolutely cannot accept that. We are fixated on him. There's a distinctiveness to him. I want you to understand why some of these rules. Most of the Canaanite religions, the priests served the God naked. It was a constant exposure. They built ornate altars on which to sacrifice. They were built high up. So they went up and they were exposed and they made the offering. And it was this huge presentation. Who was emphasized? They are. Man is emphasized. And so God starts his covenant laws by reminding them that we will worship him where he is distinct. I have a few things to think about here. Um, We know or we have met the Savior. Does our worship reflect that reality or is it polluted constantly with the culture and its methodology around us? When people come and say, why don't we do this in church? Why don't we do that in church? Why can't we do this? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with this? And I always look, and my answer will always be the same. Show me in the Bible what God wants. We do what God wants. And it doesn't mean that we can be so uh, stuck in the mud that we say, well, my preference is what needs to be done. But there are components, and a lot of them, and most of the questions center around humanity's desire to have an experience that they want when they walk into worship. And God is telling us from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, you worship God how God desires to be worshiped, period. And we don't weave in the culture of the day. We don't suck that in and say, well, we have to have that, that methodology. We're not, we're not going to replicate what's around us. Look, to a lot of people standing up and singing hymns congregationally, they're thinking, no, we would rather have the professionals sing, right? And be sung too. There's a host of people that say, man, alive, you sit and listen to some guy talk for that long? And I know I go long sometimes. But you know, that long, more than 10 minutes, five minutes, you listen to him talk about the Bible? It's not even inspirational in the sense of making me feel good about myself or anything else. Because what's the world come to? They come to an event. They want to see or see a performance, there's a reason why we're fixated on singing congregationally. And it's not because we think we sing so well. We do know we worship that, our God that way and that he desires to hear that. I say all the time, the only person that enjoys hearing me sing is God. He's the only person that could enjoy it. I'm reminded of that all the time. Now I have, I have a teenage daughter. She's 13. She's taking violin. She's musical. Thank heaven she has some skill from her mother. My son does not. Um, Landon is devoid of any musical talent. It's genetically imposing him. Listen to my dad saying, listen to my mom saying, you know where I get it from. All right. (laughs) Hey, we're Dutch is what I say. We just drone on, stoic. You know, that's the reason those paintings look that way. We're that kind of people. All right. Um, 
But, and so my, my daughter reminds me, like, she was just the other day where I was just playing around because I love to, you know, I don't know if you're a parent that enjoys this, but I have a 13-year-old daughter and I get amazing amount of joy out of embarrassing her because she's embarrassable. And so as a parent, I think that's my job. So I do that. Uh, so I'll, sometimes I'll sing in public where I would never do this, but now I will do it just because she's so embarrassed. So the other day she's like, Dad, did you notice you sang harmony? I'm like, no, I don't know when I sing harmony. I don't know what I'm singing. I'm just singing. I don't know music. I don't hear notes. None of it. It all sounds beautiful to me. Okay. It's just wherever you land, I'm happy for you. It goes. But I have heard her remind me that only God enjoys my singing. Um, that's there. And the little kids like it. Well, all that to say, we, we sing and worship and, and, and we sing out loud and we sing to God because we want to worship and praise him. And that's what he wants us to do. That's not a new thing. That's been around since Exodus, where God says, well, how do I want you to worship? I want you to worship the way I told you to do it. I want you to worship distinctively because you're my people and I am your God and I am the only God. So what follows now is this slide with a lot of words on it. So I will slide out of the way just a little bit. I've tried to summarize the laws into categories and in no way, shape, or form are my categories perfect, or could there be perfect categories? Could you make more categories? 100%. Could you make less categories? Not at all. So this is about as low as you can get on that. I'm not going to read through it all. It's a lot of chapters. I just want to move through these and give you a key thing to look for, and maybe even throw some curveballs out there that, that make my mind think. And, and I have to wrestle with, and I'll let you wrestle with them as well. We move into what is called instructions about life. How do we live our life? Now, before we dive into this, and we're going to see this now, we're going to see this in Leviticus, we're going to see this in Deuteronomy. How do we handle these very specific laws that deal with Israel, uh, many of which are designed for the Israelite specific circumstances, both in the fact that they don't have a land yet, they're nomadic, and, and the time that they live in, um, but they're laws that point out something. They, they show us what God wanted from his children at that time. So how do we apply that? We listen to the principle that God has here and we apply it so that as his people today, we obey or act or interact the way God would want us to do in a way that glorifies him. And we can learn a lot from these laws. What does it tell us is that God's people are to be holy, merciful, and just. That's the gist of them. He's setting behavioral laws that is going to promote his holiness, his mercy, and his justice. Now, these laws fit the ancient culture and need to be evaluated and judged from that perspective. Uh, it's important to notice that the laws given to Israel do have justice and humanitarianism running through them. Uh, that's not the case necessarily with all other ancient laws, by the way. Uh, even the one's famous Hammurabi's Code, uh, you're going to see things about servants that they don't have anything in there because they have nothing to help a servant, no rights for a servant, nothing that goes there. Uh, there's minimal respect for women uh, and, and children, and they view it as property. You're going to see a different take here. Now, I'll highlight this when we get to it, uh, but there's times like in the area of violence where sometimes you think, wait a second, this person hit his servant and he, and he dies or she dies and they have to pay a penalty. But if they kill someone that's not their servant, they actually get the death penalty. And you think, well, that's not fair. Again, I remind, rewind us to the culture we're in 
and that's the only place where any type of justice for a servant would be given. So again, we have to see it in context of what's taking place in that time. Um, there is sanctity of life woven through the fabric of them. Though some, it's harder to see the context that's there. Um, but especially when you see people sold as servants. Again, we're one of the only societies in history where slavery is not a part of what we do. Uh, I think that's a blessing. That's a pointing to what God would want. We have to realize that for the majority of history, people were sold into slavery. I want you to remember something, though. The servants here are Hebrews servants sold to each other. So recognize the context. We can quickly jump to our history and see something different. You need to recognize how it functioned, and we'll see a little bit of what goes on there. Note this, and this is from Bernard Ramsey. states, all of life, though, was under the rule and lordship of God. I want you to recognize that all the laws pointed to God. The direction was God is in control. He sets the precedent. He sets the rule. And what I want us to be confronted with is that idea of control. Does God have this type of control in your life? Does God influence, and I'm going to go to servants, how you deal with your employees, how you deal with people you work with? Does God influence how you respond to situations and where you hold accountability? Does God influence how you view this, this view property? Do I think that the economic view you hold can have biblical significance? I guarantee you it does. And laws about property will point to that and why that's important. It's not just something you get to pick willy-nilly. There is a principle that's woven into the fabric of Scripture that will point something out. Social responsibilities and how we respond. Then general justice and mercy, religious festivals, and then the future conquests and what they have to avoid. I just want us to see that this idea of control in life is there. And I put a control that too many believers today struggle to relinquish. So think about your life for a second as we walk through these. And you tell yourself, honestly, God has control of every part of my life. God influences how I do business, how I talk to my friends, what I do on the weekends, what I do on the weekdays, what I'm involved in. Look, he's involved in what they eat, where their money goes, how they lend money to people, how materialistic they are in the society that they're in. He's involved in everything, right? Look, if you're dipping into how you interact with people and people's money, you're getting into everything, right? So you're, you're involved. And so he's involved. So as we review these ordinance of life, I want you to apply the principle of God's control to it as we work through this. Now we begin with the laws about servants, 21, 1 through 11. Again, I'll highlight a few verses here and there on some of them. You can read through it. Here's the key I want you to pull out of this. Because again, we wrestle with this and it's okay that we do. We live in a society that has condemned selling a person back and forth. We actually live in a society where um, the slavery is not visible anymore. Uh, what's visible, and it doesn't come to light, uh, the human trafficking is, is a horrible plague on our world right now. People are being sold back and forth, and it's oftentimes underage children. And so it's horrible. In other words, our world hasn't learned anything. They need Jesus. We need Christ to, to, to conquer this. But we need to jump out of our Western mindset and do see what's here. There's the rights of the servant. Notice there's an option for perpetual servanthood, and I want you to realize why that would might take place. It's likely if the person received a wife and had a family while in service. So here's how it would work there. We have a view of servanthood or slavery, and it's probably at its ugliest that it could ever be at. Um, 
and thankfully it's gone. When they sold themselves, I, let's say I'm in debt and I would go to Mr. Westergaard and say, hey, I'm gonna sell myself to you and he's gonna pay for six years of, of basically owning me, but he owns my service, right? So in that, there's a financial remuneration that maybe pays for debt or helps my family or does something else. And then I spend six years working for him. He feeds me and takes care of me. But you realize that after six years, I'm free. It was, a, and I call it a contract that would come. So seventh year, I'm freed. So now he doesn't want to buy me anymore. He's like, ah, seven years. It takes seven years to get him to do any good, you know? So, um, but the idea here is recognize there was freedom after seven years. The person was not owned for a lifetime, but instead for a certain time of work. Now, you're going to say, Kenny, what about the portion about women? And they weren't able to get free. There was two types of servants sold. A woman could sell herself into domestic service where she would follow the same pattern. If you go to Deuteronomy, you'll see the six years of service, seventh year free. However, there were certain times when someone became someone's wife, and that's the difference in some of those rules there. Uh, this was sent around this person being a wife for the man or a wife for one of the servants, thus a different ruling. I bring that up because I know when I read it, I'm like, what? Why does the man get free after seven years and the woman stuck with this guy forever or this situation? It's a different situation. You go to Deuteronomy, it sheds some light on it. What I want you to realize, though, is that uniquely to this society, there was the rights of the servant. There was the rights to freedom. There's a right to make a decision for perpetual servanthood. There was a right if, if, the, if someone were to take a wife and, again, their society... Uh, God does not ever put a stamp of approval on it. So they had multiple wives. He doesn't put a stamp of approval on that. He is for your hardness of heart, he said. They had a concubine. That was for hardness of heart. That woman was given marital rights, but not the same as the first wife. So if this woman was brought in under that context, there was rulings for her to be freed if the man chose differently, that they, she wasn't left perpetually in servanthood to this person. So it was, again, a protection in the context of what it is. But I want you to key in on something. Rights of the servant, that's not in any other laws. There are no rights to servants. The rest of society says, you're like my cow to me. You're a donkey to me. And God says, they're still my child. I want you to realize that. That overarching principle, that's there. You remove all the cultural significance and one of the ways, if you look through history, if you see the mistreatment of a slave, it's anti-biblical because God has always said, they are my, what? Child. They're not demeaned. They're not lowered. They're not less than. He's dealing with a societal issue, but there's the rights of the servant. We move on, um, and I put here the reality of ancient culture slavery, but notice the term limit set and key in on the rights of the servant, or more importantly, they are still your equal in God's eyes. You see that principle in the New Testament, right? There's neither what? Slave nor free. Jew or Greek, right? Male or female. What is God telling everyone, screaming? He said it in both Testaments. He looks down and he sees what? His children. Later on, we're going to see laws about lending money and someone who's poor and giving their cloak back. And God says, you don't give them their coat back at night. And I'm looking down on that and I'm making sure. In other words, he didn't make a financial distinction. This was a financial burden that someone fell under. And God says, they're equal in my eyes, the rights of the servant. See that. Now we move on to violence. 
laws about violence. Um, here's the key, sanctity of life overall. That God says um, he cares about the death of his children because they're made in his image. I want you to notice the difference between accidental and premeditated killing. God leaves room for the innocence, but not the abuse of the law. Do you know in verse 14 it says this? So can you imagine this? Someone premeditatively going to come along and he's going to murder Cody. So we're going to pretend that Jesse murders Cody. This is kind of a weird little Bible study. That's why the numbers keep slimming down. Uh, and then Jesse pretends like it's an accident. So he runs to a city and he gets in front of the altar and says, oh, I'm claiming God's protection. This is what God says. We're supposed to be discerning. He says, um, to the person who's doing that, he says, Thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. God says, I'm not, I'm not going to harbor a murderer. There's a law in place to protect the innocent, but not for you to manipulate the law to protect the innocent. That, that town had to come in and they had to investigate. They had to see if it really was an accident. And when they realized it's not an accident, he says, Don't let them holding on to my altar change at your disposition. Remove them from the altar and it's done. You remember Solomon? He has. The old general killed and he holds on to the altar and he says, just kill him at the altar, right? It's just, it's over. He cannot claim God's protection. You cannot manipulate God's protection. And I just want you to see how God has in the sanctity of life room for an accident, but not room for abuse of people's protection for an accident. I put notice the variance with the servants. I think it's the toughest part here for me. We need to again place ourselves in context. What is God doing with his law? He's actually emphasizing the right of the servant. Every other law says you can kill your servant whenever you want to. It doesn't matter. God says you knock the tooth out of your servant's mouth and he's free. You poke his eye out or her eye out, she's free. The thing I struggle with the most is 20 and 21. If you killed your servant, you didn't get the death penalty. You were penalized, but you didn't get the death penalty. And if your servant lived two days and then died, you didn't get penalized. And so it's, it's a struggle. But again, you go back to the context of their society and also understanding that there was probably situations that you would put your workers in that maybe endangered them that if they died that's how they looked at that context there again i wanted to highlight the things that would when i read it i'm like wait a second you know i thought they're equal they are equal it's just in the context of where we're at recognize that there's no other society that cares at all about someone who is your servant and god is saying i do care I do value their life. It is important. If you knock their tooth out, they're free. So if you paid $100,000 for someone to work with you for six years, and day one you knock their tooth out, God says your $100,000 is lost, and they're free because you, the tooth, paid for that. Right? Your eye paid for it. So you see, again, sanctity of life overall. And then here's the thing, the classic passage in verse 23, and if any mischief follow, this is after the whole conversation of the woman getting hit and losing the baby and then maybe losing her own life is if any mischief follow then thou shalt give life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot burning for burning wound for wound stripe for stripe now how many ways have that been misapplied what's the context of this god is giving a what law who administers the law does that mean if John punches me in the face, I'm like, there you go, buddy, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that I punch him back? That's never been the context of that law. The context of that law is, if he pokes my eye out, 
and they rule on it, what's his punishment? He loses an eye. I don't take his eye, and I don't take his tooth, and I don't take his life. If I take John's life, which is kind of interesting, right? If I, he killed me and I take his life, then you've got a whole host of problems, buddy. <laughs> this cat has nine lives, you know? But the fact is, it was not a revenge thing that they could seek there. They, they would rule on it. So I, just, I wanted to read the classic verse because it's been misapplied, right? How many Wild West fanatics, right? Well, you killed my brother, I'm going to kill you, you know? No, the law would come and rule and then their punishment. This is the same as reading when a judge goes and someone is found guilty of X and X has the maximum sentence of Y, then the judge is allowed to give him Y for that, right? The judge can't say, you did X and I'm going to rule and give you a totally different punishment that's way more than that. No, we have regulations on how much punishment. That's what this is. We've misapplied it for years. I mean, everyone has taken this out of context. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You punch me, I punch you. You wreck my car, I wreck yours. Right? This is the idea, and it's completely wrong. This was never a personal vendetta, but instead punishment prescribed for the offense that the judges or elders would rule on. It was a level of punishment, not a revenge vendetta. Make sense? We go on... um, I want you to notice overall justice and fairness of God and the sanctity of life woven into the fabric of their society and living. Now we've covered that. We move on to laws about property. What is the key I want you to remember here? Ownership and responsibility. Notice that, and this I find fascinating, uh, and this is a good temperament for for all of us, I think, and, and no matter what side of the argument you might fall on, but notice that one, there's one thing in there that talks about someone stealing and when you steal something, you had to repay more. Uh, you steal five sheep from me, you have to give me six back. There's one-fifth more, right? If I catch you breaking into my house at night and I kill you, I am considered not guilty because I could assume you're going to harm my family. But you know, right there it says you can't kill a thief in broad daylight. And I just want you to understand what God's saying. So if, if Dustin, now Dustin's a thief. Cody's dead. Dustin's a thief. Tom's a slave owner. I mean, this is a really interesting scenario we got going on here. So Dustin breaks into my house, and I fear for my life, and I take his. The law says that thief that came in, even though he wasn't going to hurt my family, I had the right to assume he would. But if he breaks into my house at daytime, and I say, Dustin broke into my house, and I could kill him, or he gets away, The law says he gets away and you go and say, Dustin stole this from me and they rule on it and he pays me back in one fifth. They actually drove you to go seek the law to deal with it. It wasn't a Wild West movie that we think of where everyone's throwing spears at each other and say, well, you step foot in my house, you know, it's done. You were stealing. And I want you to see in this area of property and response, balance. See God's balance here. Now, go on. Notice that you were fairly held responsible for your actions. If you start a fire and it gets out of hand and goes in your neighbor's crop, guess who pays for the crop damage? You do. Oh, I didn't think the thorns would catch on fire and burn that much. Well, you should have. There is responsibility. If you watch someone's things and are negligent, you're responsible. But if you've done things right and they end up getting lost, you're not responsible. If you borrow an animal to do a task and that animal dies, you have to replace the animal. If the owner of the animal is along with the animal, 
and the animal dies, you know nothing because it says it came with its hire. It came, you, the owner of the animal is there to say that's too dangerous for the animal. You see the level balance that's there? And then I want you to understand something. Notice that people own things and people do not own things, that there's ownership. There are laws about property because my house is not your house. It's my house. And my animals are my animals are not your animals. And you can light a fire in your field. If it gets in my field, you're held responsible because you burned my field. That's not the way our society works, right? Everyone gets everything and can do whatever they want. You look at the mobs. You want to understand the mobs that are going on? And I'm going to throw this out there not to upset anyone. I don't care what your view is on the issues, but the Bible's clear on the mob violence. It actually talks about mob violence, that it's wrong, that this, you don't get to destroy someone else's property. See, your economics are actually a biblical vendetta. God has had property ownership from the beginning, and he's always had responsibility linked to it. So I want you to realize something. You're going to be distinct. You're going to be responsible. You're going to stand up. If you do actions that are wrong, you pay for those actions. If you destroy your neighbor's property, you pay for it. And the law is going to lay it out there, and you're going to be financially responsible. There's none of this excuses for why I do what I do. And just understand, and I want, to, I want to say this, regardless of how you think politically today, God is not stuttering when he talks about property and responsibility, ownership and responsibility. Now he moves on to laws about social responsibilities. This is 16 through 31. This is involved. Here we get with a variety of laws. Here's where you could break it down in a million places. So just understand. This deals with sexual sin, pagan and occult practices, perversions of nature, and lending of money. Talk about a nice, neat package. This is a counseling session. You're sitting down, you're dealing with all these. You're never finishing, all right? Here's the key I want you to see in all these laws. Set apart. Holy. And ye shall be, it ends with 31, and ye shall be holy men unto me. So this mixed bag of laws that I'm just putting into social responsibilities. The idea is you're holy, you're set apart. So notice the seduction of a woman without engagement. In that culture, you would pay a bride price, you would be engaged, you would be married. Now they're dealing with someone who seduces somebody and they engage in immorality before that and there's repercussions. You'll pay the bride price. You'll marry that girl. If the dad doesn't want you to marry her because he doesn't think you're worth it, you still pay him the bride price and he keeps his daughter because you're not supposed to do things that way. So you've stepped outside of bounds. You've done things the wrong way. And God says, you're going to do things differently than the culture around you. The culture around you, well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. If the priests are doing all their stuff naked, you can imagine the immorality that's unfolding most of their gods had a sense, and even in the Greek mythology, they, they found a way to make religion sexual so they could do whatever they want in the name of religion. That's a convenient excuse because man is perverse. Humankind tends towards sin and debauchery. And so they find a way to make it spiritual to do what's wrong. And I just, just close your eyes for a second and listen to a newsreel anytime, anywhere, and I'm guessing you're going to hear man making what they do right. And it's their religion. It's what they live for. It's their identity. It's, look, it's sick. 
You have, we have a culture right now where, where there are uh, principals and teachers in schools who are trying to encourage children to keep from their parents this perversion. They go to school and change and do, do whatever you want. All, all this is is pagan occult worship. It, it, it's, you can see the satanic influence. It just hits right there. It is what we've always done. It's not new at all. This is what everyone's always encouraged each other to do. Find a way to make perversion right. That's all they did. And what is God screaming out to them? Absolutely not. He says, if you even seduce somebody and don't follow the proper channels, you're going to follow through with this. Then he goes on to these interesting laws for capital punishment. If you engage with a sorcerer, you are killed. If you worship other gods, you are killed. If you engage in immorality with an animal, you are killed. And then this, right out of the blue, he comes up with a safeguard of the foreigner. Don't treat a foreigner incorrectly. It's a complete shift. You go from seducing a woman to doing the weirdest things you can think of to remember that you were a foreigner in Egypt. Don't mistreat people in your land. So you were wondering, only laws about Hebrew servants? Social responsibilities? And guess what they've told Israel? Take care of the foreigner. Take care of the stranger. Take care of the person that's not like you. Take care of the person that talks different than you, eats different than you, looks different than you. And it says, you remember that you were a foreigner in Egypt and you make sure you treat them correctly. And I want you to realize something. God is reminding them right there. What is he doing with the foreigner? Elevating them. Saying, they are the same. No, they're not God's chosen people, but they're still his people, right? He owns all the world. And so he says, they are valuable, equally valuable in my eyes. Don't mistreat the foreigner. And then he goes into the interesting thing about laws about money. When you loan money, you don't charge interest and you don't abuse the power of loaning money. That's the idea. Like, say, for instance, I got to pick on somebody else, Carrie, right here. So Carrie gives me his coat because he borrows something from me. And God says, Carrie doesn't have money to have another coat. And at night, he needs that coat to sleep. Otherwise, he gets cold. You better make sure you give him his coat back at night so he can sleep and he can give his coat back to you in the daytime that you can hold that until he pays you back. But don't you dare say, hey, you're going to be cold tonight until you pay me back. Your life's going to be miserable until you pay me back. You're going to feel the pain of this, buddy, until you pay me back. You know what God says? I'm looking down. And that's my child. And you're going to pay if you do that. It should remind us a little bit. Look, there's a need to be financially astute, to be a good steward of what God's given you. And when people make foolish decisions, they often face the consequences of that. But absolutely not, as a church, do we lord that over somebody. Absolutely not do we punish them beyond the consequences they face. God is telling them, hey, you better give him his coat back. You better make sure he can live, right? That he can handle it. I'm always reminded because you're in the business world, right? You want to pay the bills as late as you can, right? You want to stretch this out, stretch the dollar. And then sometimes, like, guys are working on the roof, and I'm like, hey, man, the deal's a deal, and we're paying at the end. That's his problem. Not that he's asked for money. I'm just using this as an illustration. It's easy to think, hey, that's the deal they made, but when they face some hardship, and we can say what? Well, that was his problem. You ever say that? That's his problem. Do you ever wonder if that's what God wants you to say? I'm not saying you could take on, you can't buy everyone out of their troubles. That's, God doesn't want you to do that either. He doesn't say you forgive the debt. He just makes sure you give his coat back so that he 
can function and get this out of the way. He says you don't burn him with the interest and keeps compiling on top of that. You don't go to your brother and say, hey, you need, you need some money. You need some money this month and I'm going to give it to you. But I want to remind you that um, you're going to pay interest on this and it's going to be big interest. See, Kerry, I say one thing about him, the guy leaves. It's just... <laughs> Recognize the social responsibilities. Be unique. You look different than everyone else. So God's serious about them being different, not abuses, not arrogant toward each other. He reminds them over and over again. He sees them, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're male or female, whether they're, you name it, Greek or Jew, he sees them the same, and he keeps telling them that with these laws. Then you get into chapter 23, and I'm out of time, I see that, so I'm going to go ahead and fast forward. I didn't realize how long I've been talking. So laws about justice and mercy. What's the key here? Integrity. It's about being, being not involved in the wrong. This is where you talk about the whole mob thing a little bit. Don't align with wicked, even if the thing they're accomplishing is right. Don't work with wicked people, period. You don't have to think... You ever heard this? The end justify the what means? You want to know if, what God thinks of that? Don't work with the wicked even if what they're doing is good because then you help the wicked and I don't want you to help the wicked. That's what God says. God does not believe the ends justify the means at all. You look at this. It even says it here in Scripture. Don't get involved in mob justice. Is a mob ever just? No. And you can think back to your school days, right? You ever have a kid that's getting picked on and then three of your buddies and you get on, you pick on the kid. Are you doing right? You know you're not doing right. You get caught up in it. And what is the one? I felt so bad while doing it. But you still did because you got involved in mob justice or really mob injustice because a mob is never just. Get out of the mob. God doesn't give you excuse. God doesn't tell you you got caught up in it. He says, don't do it. Be discerning enough not to do it. And then the religious festivals, I want you to realize Sabbath laws are there because he needs you to rest. But actually what he spends most of his time talking about is he says your animals need a rest and the people that work for you need a rest. And it reminds you of something. God says you need a rest. And he's concerned about them. Because he knows you're going to take a nap. He wants them to have a chance to take a nap. He wants the animals to rest and the land to rest. And then he gives you the appointed feast and we can go into all those, but they, they roll through the year. It's March, April, May, June, and then September, October, our feast that they all had to come to. And then there's laws about the future conquest. And what he says is be carefully obedient. I read an article this morning. It talked about sin and how you battle sin. And it says, never make a truce with your sin. Never think you're at peace with your sin. Never think that sin is not trying to attack you. And when God says you go into this country and you take the Canaanites, never let your guard down because you're just going to get involved with their gods. Then 24, 1 through 18, let me summarize this in a breath here. Moses comes down. He says to the people, I read the verse, they commit to this. Then the elders go up. They have a feast in front of God in that sense. And then God calls Moses back. What does God call Moses back to? 40 days on the mountain. What does the mountain look like when Moses is on there? It looks like the mountain's being consumed for 40 days. And it's during these 40 days that the nation of Israel breaks all the laws that they've just committed to. Keep that in mind. They've committed 
and 40 days later, less than 40 days later, they are engaging in immorality, they make a golden calf, they worship that calf, and they give them credit for everything that's going on. Less than 40 days. Just so you get an image about quickly, you can send. We're going to move in, though. We're going to spend the next chapters talking about the tabernacle and the priests. I closed it before I could read the little application I wrote. Here's the application. Thought about these laws. Does God dictate in every area of your life or are some portions closed off? Does God dictate every area of your life? Because that's what he's saying he does. That's what that means. And then two, is he distinct above all else and therefore entitled, I use that word on purpose, entitled to make demands on all parts of your life? Or do you attempt to limit, restrict, and lower him? Is God distinct above all else and therefore entitled to make demands of all parts of your life? Or do you restrict, lower, or what's the other word I used? Limit. 